0: I'm Kelsey Litchfield, and this is an edition of Audio Albums from Colleen Callahan Consultancy. Today, you'll hear from two legendary farm broadcasters, Ken Root and Colleen Callahan. They come together to share their world from the war zone. Ken describes the 60 hours he spent in Iraq with former Secretary of Ag Mike Johans. While Colleen recollects her journey through the Middle East with former Secretary of Ag and veteran. They talk about why they chose to go on this trip, and I asked if they had any doubts while they were there, being in an active war zone. And then, what did Ken and Colleen learn from their time spent overseas? They talk about all this today in this audio album.
1: My name is Ken Root. I'm an agricultural news broadcaster since 1974. I've been a lot of places in the country, but currently I am retired in Northeast Iowa after a career that uh, went through radio and television, uh, chances to go to about 40 countries across the world. But I never thought I would be able to go into a war zone. Um, my last uh, job in farm broadcasting at a major station was incidentally at WHO Radio in Des Moines. Their farm broadcaster, who was Herb Planbeck, went to World War II uh, as one of their reporters who rotated into the war, and uh, he was uh, trying his best to get human interest stories and to try to talk to the men who were from Iowa who were there in the war. So that kind of came back to me when I did this trip to Iraq. I only went to Iraq on my trip with Secretary of Agriculture Mike Johans and a a small contingent, and it was 60 hours total from when we left Washington, D.C. until we got back there.
2: Well, Ken, thank you. I don't have um, as rich uh, a background in um, travel as you do. I, I have not been to 40 countries. But I've been, and I've I've never really counted, Uh, so I'll have to do that, and then we can um, uh, take notes on that. But I never imagined uh, traveling to a war zone either. Um, And why was I asked? Um, I had been in broadcasting for 32 years at WMBD Radio and Television uh, in Peoria, um, who also had uh, an outlet in Champaign, Illinois. So the work that I did uh, covered most of central Illinois. And after 32 years, I left on my own accord and left very amicably and uh, went back and and did some fill-in work. But in 2003, I began my own communications business. I was at home preparing for a motivational presentation that I would be giving the next week and also a, a bit of preparation to return to Kansas City to the National Association of Farm Broadcasting Convention uh, as the immediate past president, the past president uh, has some responsibilities at that next meeting after you've left office. Uh, and so the morning that I received a call from the press secretary for Ag Secretary uh, Ann Veneman, uh, she asked if I would accompany the secretary to the Middle East to visit Uzbekistan, Afghanistan and Iraq. President. Um, Bush had asked each cabinet member to spend some time in the war zone so they had some some background there as it related to their respective cabinet level responsibilities. And I don't know for sure why I was asked. We never really talked about it, but I'm thinking that the reason I was is because the secretary was the first woman to serve as the cabinet level secretary of agriculture. I was the first woman to serve as the president of the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. She and I had met at meetings. I'd introduced her at some commodity meetings. I interviewed her. Now, I was not the first or the only broadcaster that was asked uh, to accompany her. I was just the first one that accepted. And I did that with hesitation. Uh, The call came in on a Monday morning. I was home by myself. Um, the invitation was um, clearly unexpected, and it gave me great pause. Uh, and so my mind is racing while I'm listening to the purpose of the trip, not only to, to be in the war zone and to learn, but there was a very strong women's component to the travel by Ag Secretary Veneman with a great deal of time spent in Afghanistan visiting women's centers there. So I'm guessing that was the relationship that brought us together and that, that commonality. Uh, but I, I thanked, uh, I said I was honored, I was humbled, but I, I would decline because I had these two conflicts, An AFB meeting, my first real, real work in my, um, my new business. So I couldn't get it off my mind all day. Uh, and then Dick got home, my husband, and we sat down. I said, well, I got an interesting call today. Um, and I said, I'm so flattered as I explained it to him, but I said, I'm not going. And Dick said, you're not going. And I said, no, I have these conflicts. But I said, the truth of the matter is I'm scared. I have never been in a war zone. I only know what I see on TV and what I read. And and I really, I'd I'd just be scared to go. I learned more about Dick, my husband that evening uh, and his Marine Corps combat machine gunner, door gunner experiences in Vietnam than I knew in over 20 years of marriage. And while I knew that the right answer was to accept this, this incredible opportunity and offer, I guess I just needed somebody to, to encourage me to do it. Um, and while he didn't tell me to go, um, he just presented it in a different manner. So I called an NAFB, I called the entity that I was to give the presentation to, and to a person, they said, you've got to go. (laughs) Uh, And so that's my background, Ken, on how I um, eventually accepted that invitation uh, and traveled into that war zone.
0: And with, with that, Ken, I'm curious for you, why do you think you were invited to your own trip?
1: Well, I think that the uh, Johans administration wanted to get the most publicity they could from this trip. Um, Cabinet-level secretaries during that administration were going through uh, pretty quickly. I guess we were both in the George W. Bush era, but this was the second term of George W. Bush, and they were rotating cabinet-level secretaries through, and USDA got its turn And I believe that a couple of friends that Colleen and I have in USDA communications just got out the map and said, who is at a radio station? Who is in a place that could give us the biggest bang for the buck? Uh, They also wanted to embed us with them. In other words, there's no separation. We're all in every place together, which I like that. Um, It kind of implies that you have sold out, but in the other way, it hasn't. It implies that they are giving you access. So I took it that way. And in my uh, being called, I don't know if anybody else was called ahead of me or not, but Colleen has always been a role model of mine. And that trip that she and Ms. Veneman took was really the one that was the, that was the groundbreaker because Colleen, I know at least two men who later on said, Well, I could have gone, but, um, I had something else I really needed to do. And they were very high ranking within ag organizations. So you may not have been the first to be picked, but you're the first that had guts enough to do it. So I like that a lot, but in my trip, the guts were, it was a hot war right then, right where we were going. I don't know if yours ever had a place that you felt like you'd draw fire. But we, oh, drew, we, we
2: did, did, we did draw fire. It didn't feel like it. We did.
1: We drew fire three times while we were at that embassy. Yeah. And, uh, that spooked me somewhat, but again, you do what you're told and, uh, you stay in line and, and you get on through it. And that's exactly the way I behaved. And they gave us flak jackets and I put mine on and they gave us a helmet and I put mine on where other people's afraid it messed up their hair. I didn't have that problem.
2: Well, some parallels here, Kelsey, Um, and I hardly know where to begin. My my time there was before the capture of Saddam Hussein. So this was in November of 2003. He was captured in December of 2003. So Hmm. we had flown into Uzbekistan, then Afghanistan, and then into Iraq, and at the airport, like Ken, we were issued flak jackets and told not to take them off. Um, we traveled the route from the airport to Baghdad to the Coalitional Provisional Authority headquarters, which had been uh, the prime and the primary palace of Saddam Hussein.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It was turned into... The headquarters. That's where we stayed. They had taken the pool house on the back side uh, of of this property. Um, just took some plywood, made some makeshift uh, rooms. Um, mine was a five day uh, trip. We slept in beds two out of four nights. Uh, staying there was a rare opportunity to have a shower, uh, and so we took turns going into that shower. It was just like you would imagine to see the the gold gilted fixtures. Um, And when I was in the shower, I'd of course taken my flak jacket off and I'm showering for the first time in in a few days. And all of a sudden I hear planes and I think, do I I get my flak jacket? Do I grab my clothes? And then thankfully I had the presence of mind to remember they didn't have any planes. They were ours. So, but it, 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 but I wasn't sure at, the, at that at that moment. Mm-hmm. So um, that said, um, later that evening, uh, I accompanied um, Secretary Veneman to a location that was very eerie. I, I I can't tell you exactly where it was in Baghdad, but it was a a big amphitheater. And she was on stage doing an interview with Wolf Blitzer. And there were only three or four people in this huge auditorium. And it just felt like it was the perfect place for something to to go awry. It didn't. We left there. We went to meet the minister of agriculture at a hotel uh, that is Hotel Al Rashid, I think was the name of it, and had a dinner with the minister of agriculture that went very well. It was informative and And as we left, we had just gotten out of the dining room and it was bombed. And so we had to race um, down the street. Uh, and the security that was with us said, they told you this was dangerous, didn't they? And I said, yes, they did. And he said, get in the car, get down in the, in the seat, uh, and we're going to race back to um, the, the headquarters, which, which we did. The next morning when we were getting ready to fly up north um, to the Kurdish area, um, all of the vehicles that were outside of of the palace had been bombed and they all looked like Swiss cheese. Uh, So we couldn't take any of those vehicles. So they had to helicopter us out uh, and then take us uh, on to the next stop. But they also had to helicopter us back uh, to the airport because they're Been some bombings along that that stretch of road between the airport and Baghdad. So, Ken is absolutely right. You just you just have to react and respond. That's all you can do. That's all you can prepare yourself to do, is to react and respond.
1: My uh, security was Blackwater, and Blackwater was just coming into prominence in a bad way because of how aggressive that they were. They were doing their job, and the interesting thing when all of us were together, w- they never looked at us. They looked at everything but us because mm-hmm. they knew where we were. Right. And uh, it was about 117 degrees during the heat of the day. Very, very hot. And the security people were mostly wearing suits. And you would assume they had armament on underneath those suits. But it was quite uh, stressful, you could tell. And the people that work for Blackwater... Uh, were being paid a very large amount of money to be there. So all of these things swirling together um, made me feel uh, even more tense about what was going on. But I wanted to raise the question of why were we there? Um, A Part of it was a show of American strength and support. But in the case of our trip, Colleen, we were there to sign documents with the Iraqi government that the U.S. Extension Service would come in and help them rebuild their agriculture. Now, if you stop and think about that one statement for a moment, here is the cradle of civilization that has been farming for 10,000 years. They have blown up everything due to their war with Iran and some of theirs with the U.S. to where they can't irrigate anymore out of the rivers. Uh, They also have killed off most of their farmers because Saddam moved them to the front lines. He didn't really like their farmers because they were too independent. So they don't even know how to raise food to feed themselves. And we're there to try to help them reinstate that. And I just thought that was the strangest thing. And we did so. We had the people, I think they called them the dirt warriors that went over there afterwards And it was people that were extension specialists, but also they were with military convoys that would go in and basically get into the villages and then bring in machinery and help them replenish their agricultural capabilities, which always included uh, irrigation, brought in seed, things like that. And the U.S. shipped a great deal of food into that country just so they could survive until the end of the war.
0: Are you guys thinking throughout this trip what the heck did I get myself into? Like thinking about the planes overhead or the security. Did you ever doubt that? Why am I on this trip? Did you ever ask yourself that?
2: I'll I'll jump in here. No, I I didn't. For me, I was only living in the moment. It it was such a a, a foreign environment to me in so many ways, (laughs) not just a different country. Not just the terrain, but certainly being in a war zone. No, I was only living in a moment. But the, but the one thing I wanted to add to what Ken said about why were we there? This is one thing that I've referenced Dick, my husband, already a, a couple of times, and I will again hear. In that after um, we had returned, um, I got a statement in the mail uh, for the cost of the trip. And Dick said, are you kidding me? They asked you, invited you, yes, to go into a war zone, and now they're asking you to pay for this trip. And I said, yes, not the whole total amount, but you know, somehow it was prorated so that you know we we really were uh, paying for our our share and and to be fair. And I said, Dick, no one at any time when I was there, not the secretary, not anyone uh, on her staff asked me to say or do anything in particular, and now that I'm back, and so I'll speak in in that tense, um, and I'm being asked to give a summary of my experience, and I must have done 40 or 50 presentations with a slide deck. Um, It was just my impressions. I was just talking about what I learned, and what I saw, and my perspectives, and had they paid for the trip, it would have appeared as I, I had been, as Ken said. You know, we were just there to say what the administration wanted us to say. That was not the case for me. Um, I said when I got back that I had new perspective. And then I corrected myself because I didn't have new perspective. I had perspective, I didn't have any before. Um, and so whatever it is I was relating was a true and honest reflection of my time there. Um, and I, again, I can't speak for Ken, but I'm glad that they, they asked me to pay for, for whatever that prorated portion was, because I wasn't uh, representing the administration. I was simply reflecting what I saw and what I had learned.
1: I am a reporter. And after my first uh, six years, when I was working with a farm broadcaster, uh, when I was in my 20s, who was more of an extension agent on TV... I moved to uh, Kansas and started working with a farm broadcaster named Rich Hull, and Rich was trained as a reporter, and uh, on-the-job training is what it's all about in most of everything Colian and I have done, so I learned that if you were a reporter and you could go into a situation, you could keep your head, and you could get your message out, you were doing your job. I want to go back to the Al Rashid Hotel for a second, if I can, because there was a man there on the first night of the Iraq war, number one, back in the nineties, by the name of John Holloman. And John Holloman was with CNN. Mm -hmm. But before that, he had been a farm broadcaster for AP out of Washington. And John has the most amazing stories he has since passed about the bombs going off. And that he had a radio background. And so as soon as the war started, they had a connection through another country that the Iraqis and the Americans didn't know about. So their radio audio stayed up, but their video went away. And, uh, he said, they told me that it wouldn't work. And he said, uh, are you sure they're not getting us back in Atlanta? Well, we don't know. So he said the radio message always in his says was just keep talking. So he just kept talking, kept reporting, and about fifteen minutes later, in the dark, you know, obviously the lights have been blown out of the hotel. Somebody said, "Oh, there's a headphone jack stuck in the speaker." They pulled the headphone jack and out in Atlanta said, "You're doing great, man. We're hearing everything you're saying. Come on, keep reporting." And I felt basically a lower level of that same thing, that I'm there, and uh, I'm getting to see what I want to see and say what I want to say, and I didn't miss the opportunity, um, partly because of my background and partly because of the moment, but it was very uh, intense. The people who were in the embassy when I was there were scared half to death. Uh, They had a little gossip network traveling through, so when you hear a boom outside, About five minutes later, you heard what it was. I mean, they told you it was a mortar that came in and hit a car. Uh, Or that was small arms fire. That was the first case we had coming from who knows whom. That was just basically getting as close to the embassy as they could, which was that palace you're talking about, and then shooting into us. And then later on in the afternoon, when we were expecting the national media to actually drive out from where they were, probably the Al Rashid, to the uh, embassy they didn't show up and we found out later when we went over to camp victory that uh, there had been a bomber at the gate of the embassy and they killed him before he could detonate the bomb so that was three times in that one day that we were hit but i was able to just get the feel of the embassy listen to the people who spoke english listen to what the secretary had to say. We also had this uh, Air Force colonel traveling with us by the name of Dan Kane, who was a White House fellow at the time. His background, among other things, was that he had been in an F-16 over Washington, D.C. on 9-11 with orders to shoot down any aircraft flying. So he was a pretty serious guy. And uh, we were following his lead in what we, where we went and what we did. So all of that together made me feel like that this was my moment and I didn't want to blow it.
2: I can just say ditto, uh, but I do want to add that when, when asked upon my return, and I'm sure Ken's too, people would say, do they want us there? Uh, should we be there? Um, mm-hmm. w- w- what is, what are we really doing mm-hmm. while we're there? Um, And Ken mentioned um, several people who he interacted with who had pivotal roles. Uh, For me, it was um, Lieutenant Colonel Danny Woodyard. He was uh, in the Army Reserves. Uh, He was with the Office of General Counsel at USDA in Little Rock, Arkansas. Uh, And he was was called up. At that hotel that evening when meeting uh, with the Minister of Agriculture, Uh, Danny Woodyard was introduced by the minister as St. Danny. And I point that out because people say they don't want us there. You don't get introduced as a saint if they don't think that you have done something good and well and right and needed for them. And his reference to that was, was that Lieutenant Colonel Danny Woodyard was the one who discovered warehouses full of seed and fertilizer and irrigation equipment that had never been distributed to farmers. They didn't know it was there. Saddam kept it and sold it on the black market. When Danny Woodyard discovered that, he was able then to get it distributed. And not only that, at the embassy that Ken is referring to, the, the staff who was there were just, they were so confused. They, they, they had no direction. There was no leadership. They just showed up, at least at the time that I was there in November of 2003. When Danny Woodyard got there, he engaged them and he literally employed them. And they were grateful for having direction and they wanted to do it because he was paying them before they'd just been expected to do whatever it was that they were told. So, when you see the difference that leadership can make and trust can make, Ken and I had an opportunity to see that, to to share that. Um, and whether you thought we should be in Iraq or not, whether you thought we should leave and we did or not, for those that were serving there, they weren't questioning it. They were doing what they knew should be done to help the people and going up north into the kurdish area when we met ken talked about um the agriculture production this is the tigris and the euphrates this is the garden of eden i mean it is it is the the production center of civilization if you will that had absolutely been devastated and Secretary Veneman didn't make any promises. She offered help. She offered assistance, as Ken said, with, some, with extension um, by offering scholarships to some of the students to come to the United States and learn and then apply what they learned when they went back. And one of the things that the farmers up north had asked us about was credit. They, they, there aren't banks like we know them. There is no farm credit system. Uh, And so how could they position themselves where they could become actually somewhat of an independent producer uh, and and have more say, and ability um, to do that kind Mm -hmm. of production work again. Um, I I got very close to some of the the Kurds. And after I got back a few weeks later when they did capture Saddam, I, I said to Dick, you know, as frightened as I was to go, now that Saddam has been captured in a, in a strange way, I want to go back. I I want to talk to the Kurds. I I want to see how they feel about this. I I want to know what they think comes next for them. Um, So it is about, even if you're only there a few days, uh, it it is, it is about relationships always. Ken and I established relationships that we could have never established otherwise. I was emailing back and forth for months with soldiers who were serving there. They were giving me updates on a weekly basis about what they were doing when they were building soccer fields and getting the kids involved in something that was productive and positive, rebuilding the schools. Um, it was a, an opportunity to see that um, there is a reason and a purpose for the military, and it's not just carrying artillery. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: You make fast friends when you're in a war zone like that. You do. Yes, you do. uh, I made friends with people uh, from the trip that I still correspond with. In fact, I just did a story that encompassed this a few weeks ago with Terry Moore, who was the press secretary for Secretary Johans, and she is now the uh, communications director for the American Farm Bureau Federation in Washington. I would close my part by saying that seeing the warriors there was most interesting. And they were kind of in three groups. You had those people that worked in the embassy who were risking their life as, uh, civilians, if you would, to be there either for the thrill or for the, uh, extra money of it, or just the dedication to country. I'll give them all three of those, um, And one of the men that I talked to was helping us move from place to place in the embassy. I said, uh, oh, he was kind of balding, 45-year-old guy. And I said, what do you do back home? And he said, oh, I'm in the reserve. I'm a cashier at a bank in Little Rock, Arkansas. I thought, my gosh, how can you be here? And then the others that I saw were military, because we went on over to the military base and were there for the evening. And here were soldiers that showed up. Uh, that appeared to be fighting men, although we didn't talk about that any. We couldn't, uh, they, they wouldn't bring it up. Um, but they were from Nebraska and from Iowa. And, of course, Johans was born in Iowa and was governor of Nebraska. And I got to take over uh, some ears of corn, dry ears of corn, that I got from the Living History Farms. And Herb Planbeck, back to him in World War II, would interview a soldier and then he give him one kernel of corn because Herb only had one ear of corn in his sack and he would travel for weeks. And he gave him one kernel of corn. I gave him one ear of corn a piece and we gave him beef sticks. Remember the big push for beef sticks, how that all these cattlemen's groups said, we're going to produce these. We're going to ship them over to Iraq. So we're in there talking. And I said, have you gotten any of the beef sticks? Oh yeah. And the guy paused, and he said, "But we don't eat them. You don't eat them. No, they're too valuable to eat. We trade them. Right. We trade them with people from other battalions and other groups because you know it's funny what the uh, currency may be in a war like World War II. It was cigarettes and nylon stockings and things of that nature. It was beef sticks at that time. At least that was one of them." And then the third, a little more nebulous, when we were in the embassy, we were sitting there with quite a number of Iraqi men who were coming over to the American side, and they were working with the Americans at whatever level, businessmen, others, and you could tell that they really didn't want their picture taken. They really didn't want people to know who they were because they could be a target. And the man who signed the documents with Secretary Johans was hit in a bombing just a few weeks later. He was not killed, but he had been targeted. So within a country situation like that, uh, with the uh, terrorist groups involved, it was touch and go for everybody. But they they were in it, and they were hopefully in it to win it for the American side. And although we can actually never win a war, we did bring that to a conclusion of getting rid of Saddam Hussein and uh, getting al-Qaeda calmed down or backed away um, after 9-11, which was clearly on everybody's mind at the time. I think we've come a long way.
2: Well, Ken, you're right. I talked about Danny Woodyard, who's the uh, attorney from Little Rock, Arkansas, uh, in the reserves. Um, Ken uh, Rudisall, um extension uh, agent from Florida, also in the reserves, who was who was pivotal uh, when you think about the the history and the origin uh, of the extension service. That to me was the perfect model, uh, using the extension service model to rebuild. Uh, and so he he was critical there as well. I, I would add that. Having just come from Afghanistan into Iraq, Afghanistan is a dusty, rubble, pebbled desert. You could see in Baghdad that at one time it had been a very high-functioning society with paved streets and sidewalks and um, traffic signals. Uh, we visited the University of Baghdad. We went through their agricultural uh, buildings and and curriculum, a very highly educated uh, society, particularly among the men in two thousand and three however, there were doctors who were working in hospitals as interpreters and glad to have the work because sixty percent were sixty percent of the population that was there was unemployed. I mean there was a war going on um, so it was interesting to see how you adapt, how you adjust if you are a resident and you are a professional uh, and you are trapped uh, in this war. The other thing I would mention that I, I think will never cease to amaze me is that when we know that, that part of the discussion about why we were there um, always gets back to the oil and. We were driving by gas stations, fueling stations, but there were no vehicles lined up. Rather, what, what I saw were just people lined up to get fuel with their red gas cans, like we use to fill up our, our lawnmowers. And then so they would just fill up three or four of those at a time. And that's that's the amount of fuel that that they needed. But gas was four cents per gallon.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I will leave it there.
1: Well, I have one story I would insert here for the humor of it, um, or just the the circumstance, if you wouldn't mind, you may not want to use it. I've been to Andrews Air Force Base twice. Once was when I was with Secretary Block back in the the early 1980s when he took a trip to uh, Japan, Korea, and China. And uh, when I got there, it was a very high class place um, and you zip in and they take you through the lounge and, uh, and then they put you on the plane and you're gone. So this was my second trip through, uh, like 25 years later. And, um, uh, when I got there, uh, they allowed, uh, the uh, cab to take me to a certain point. Um, I stepped into the, uh, airport area, the departure lounge, and they took my name and I had everything I had with me. And uh, they said, uh, we're going to have a bit of a delay with your group, because the president is coming in right now in the helicopter, and he's going to depart. And once he departs, then your group can leave. And I said, can I take pictures? They said, sure. So they walked me over to a window that clearly was two inches thick. And here was Air Force One sitting there, the door open, and all of a sudden I see a helicopter, and it comes in and lands on the grass, and out pops uh, President George W. Bush. And the Marines salute him at the base of the stairs, and he walks across, and uh, he waves at a couple of people, and he gets on the aircraft uh, all through an outdoor uh jet uh stand and turned around and waved to us or to everybody uh to the tv cameras probably and then he stepped on the plane and before the door shut it was moving and uh, the door shuts and the plane moves away and behind the wheels of that aircraft it revealed as it rolled away a jet And our airplane was not any bigger than the wheels of that aircraft. (laughs) It would hold nine people. We all got on and went to Shannon, Ireland in a Gulf stream, which is quite an aircraft actually, but it's a business jet. And we Shannon, Ireland, injury, air force base, and then a few hours rest. And then from there, we moved to a C 17 that we got on, which is the largest transport plane that the US government has. And I recall seeing the pilot and the co-pilot and the pilot was a man of about 30, had a little bit of a mustache. And the co-pilot was a young lady who was 23 years old and had a ponytail. And I thought, oh my goodness, how young the people in war really are. And they took us into Baghdad no windows in that airplane, huge inside, but full of uh, Humvee spare parts, uh, primarily, and uh, grenades. And then when we came back that evening, we were only in Baghdad from very early morning until after dinner, we came back to the aircraft, it was empty. And they had a football. And we were standing in the back of that airplane, playing football. And you could not throw the football within the given height of the aircraft from one end to the other. It was that far. Mm. It was amazing how big that plane was. And of course we were so relieved to be able to know that we're going home now, even though it's one day, not 13 months. And, uh, we got in the plane and as Terry Morse, I said, do you remember the flight back? She said, not a moment of it. We slept the entire trip back to Angelic Air Force Base, then got back on that aircraft and came back to Washington, D.C. and landed 60 hours later.
2: I would just add when I'd not been at Andrews Air Force Base before, but I went into that same um, lounge and waiting area. And we're, we were each given briefing books for each of the countries that we were going to visit and to study those during, during the flight. We walked out on the tarmac. And I was amazed that we were taking the plane that usually the first lady travels in. And those military at the at the base of the steps, they were they were standing there, too, uh, as we got on that plane. Once we got into the Middle East, we never saw that plane again until, as Ken just said, we left. We met up with it again uh, to to fly back. But for us, we were flying mostly in C-130s and and helicopters. And as we were, we'd gone into Kuwait out of Afghanistan to pick up these young soldiers that Ken is talking about, these young, young soldiers. And, and I, I say that endearingly and to reference that, that Ken and I probably, even though this has been years ago now, probably look like grandparents to them. I mean, they were so young, out of, out of high school uh, in many cases. In Kuwait, where we stopped to pick up soldiers from there, every soldier that got on that C-130 to go into Baghdad with us uh, had been home on emergency leave, which meant that they had been home because they'd lost a-, a mom or a dad. You can't you can't go back if it's a if it's a grandma or a grandpa. So as as poignant as as that was for me, we were on the third C-130. It's just bench seats, and you get your your you get strapped in. And across from me was this this young soldier who who knew what was coming, certainly much better than I did. And I'm sitting there just having learned from the pilot who came down from the cockpit and said, now I know some of you have been flying on C-130s for the last two or three days. This one is a little different. This C-130 The red bucket is for the men and the white bucket is for the women. There are no bathrooms on C-130s. There are no curtains. So you learn to limit your your fluid intake for one. So that was a difference. And I thought, well, this is good. You know, it was a little sense of humor. That's good for us. And then he said, however, uh, this is also different. When we approach Baghdad, we'll be landing in a circular motion because it is much more difficult to hit a circling target than it is one landing in a straight line. That's when I thought, okay, humor gone, reality sets in. So we're just now getting ready to take off as he ascends back into the cockpit. We take off and they, and it's not a slow ascent. I mean, you're, you're up and, um, there are some G forces that you can feel. And this soldier across from me who just returned from home for, for the the loss of a, a mom or a dad, threw off that harness, and he started doing the wave. And I thought, oh, my gosh, here's this, this, this kid who's just come back from a horrible circumstance going back into Iraq, and he's able to make light of it. And I thought, you know what? If he can do that, mm-hmm. I can too. Uh, and so that's how I approached the flight into Baghdad with, again, that perspective that I would have never had before.
0: Um, Briefly, one thing I want to do as we wrap up and bring it full circle. So you talked about going, getting there, your time there, coming back now. How did this trip change you either personally or professionally? How, once you landed back in America and you were back at, the radio station, or your own business, how did it affect you going forward?
1: Colleen has expressed a lot of what I would say of the feelings that she had, but when we got back, I know, first of all, I was extremely tired, and uh, we went directly uh, back to USDA headquarters, and everybody of the group went back to work, and I am still writing stories and trying to write them while I'm very tired, But with the finality of the day, I got back to my daughter's house. My daughter and her family live in Washington, D.C. And to be able to see my grandchildren and to uh, realize that this country uh, had to be the policeman to the world um, and that maybe the two grandsons I had will wind up in the military. But yet I was proud to be an American all the way, and I was proud to know that our country has the capability, uh, to be able to deal with a hostile enemy. Uh, I don't have, I never had the experience of being a soldier, but I am so thankful for those people that do that. And I do believe that the best soldiers are those teenage and early twenties, boys and girls. And then at the time, women were making a major Bigger role uh, in the fighting force as well, so I was very happy to know that that there are people who will risk their lives and lose their lives for us. Um, one more thing about Colleen and Ms. Veneman, I really thought going into these type of countries, which were so male dominated, the two of you made a strong statement for America that you know we got as much guts as anybody else. Uh, We're here in these capacities as a senior reporter and as Secretary of Agriculture. And that pleased me greatly, Colleen, at that time. And although we missed you at that NAFB convention that year, to tell people that uh, the woman who hired me to be the exec of NAFB isn't here because she just happens to be with the U.S. Secretary in Iraq and Afghanistan made me feel very proud.
2: Thank you, Ken. I, I didn't know you were going there. Thank you. Uh, for for me, Kelsey, you said how did it affect you? It, it did personally uh, and professionally. And I would say too, it was it was a life changing experience. Uh, to the extent that once once I realized and accepted, that once we took off from Andrews Air Force Base, the the knot that I had in my stomach because the, the invitation for me came on a monday morning i didn't accept it until tuesday morning and then i left home on saturday there wasn't much time in between it's the invitation comes you accept and then you depart which we did then on on sunday morning and between tuesday and sunday i had a knot in my stomach the the entire time once we were on that plane the knot left i again was in the moment and, and i knew after that conversation that I'd had with Dick, that all I could do was react and respond. I had to be prepared, however, to react and respond. And it confirmed for me what I had said oftentimes, but I don't know that I'd really thought about practicing it when I would say, you know, worry. I would encounter people either at work or friends, and then they were just worriers And I'd say, you know, worry is like sitting in a rocking chair. It keeps you busy and gets you nowhere. And it's true. And and on the plane, once I knew that that's where I was and that's where I was headed and it was going to unfold however it was supposed to unfold, worrying didn't change it. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it did confirm to me that... uh, worry is like sitting in a rocking chair it keeps you busy and gets you nowhere and it served me well that mentality that mindset served me well during the trip but then coming back as Ken said after having survived that (laughs) it, it takes a lot to get you back into whatever that situation was that you would ever have to deal with something like that once you're back home
0: Thank you for listening to today's edition of Audio Albums, produced by Colin Callahan Consultancy. To listen to more content, visit colincallahanconsultancy.substack.com.